God's word is true, bringing light and understanding to reality and our experience and to what is true. The Bible is clear and it speaks with clarity. And this morning it's speaking with clarity to this notion long abandoned by our culture that God in his justice will judge unrighteousness. We're back to the garden. Has God really said you shall surely die? No judgment is pending. Go ahead and eat that fruit. It doesn't matter. Who cares what God has said? Romans chapter 2, as we continue this walk through this extraordinary book, verses 11 through 16. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearer of the law, the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, in preparing for this message, I thought of what Peter said about what the Apostle Paul writes. He said this, Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks of them, of these matters. And then the Apostle Peter writes this in 2 Peter 3.16. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. This passage is a little dense, but it has something to say to us this morning that shapes our living. Let's not miss it. Romans 1 is the story of mankind in sinful indulgence, suppressing the self-evident truths about God and being turned over to their own desires. There's a lot of self-righteous people who look at that and say, I'll tell you what, I'm nothing like that. I'm better than average. I would never do that. Those awful people of Romans 1. Paul runs after them in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now, he's going to get to the Jewish community, which is where we will go next. Look at 2.17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely upon the law, because the Jewish people said, we are the people of God. We 
are God's pets. We're God's favorite. How do you know? Look at Sinai. He gave us the law of God. We got the Torah. Moses brought it down. Now, all the Jewish people ever did, along with everyone else, is break the law of God. That's all of us. But they were relying upon their religious heritage. Hey, we have the law. And so he says, you know what matters is not having the law, it's keeping the law. And you indicate that you actually believe in the one true God when you actually obey what the one true God has asked us to do. That in the integrity of our living, the integrity of our faith shows up. And the absence of the integrity of our living is indicative of the absence of authentic faith. That's what's going on here. So Paul says to those listening from the Gentile community, you know, there are some of you who because you're made in the image of God have had the law of God written on your hearts and your conscience has prodded you to do what is right as a faith response to God. You believe God and the indication of your faith is in how you lived and so he says they're a law unto themselves. Now we can misunderstand that English phrase, the law themselves. What, what's that guy? What do you think? You're above the law? You make up your own law? He's not talking anything. He's saying that within them written on their heart is the law of God and they're responsive to it. And therefore, they demonstrate their belief in God by their responsiveness to what has been revealed to them. And so... These concepts are here and they get a little thick, but we're going to make it through them. Let's think of three truths that will help us navigate this passage and then four cues to take home for living. Nobody cares about an unwound discussion of some dense idea, but living matters and all of us will go out and live all week long as we meet on this first day of the week. So three thoughts in approaching this passage. This is a gnarly passage, not easily understood, but God's going to help us. And his spirit is here to lead us in understanding. Number one, these five verses are an extension of 2.11. God shows no partiality. The Bible is a book about God, revealing what God is like. What is God like, Eric? He's unlike us. He is not prejudiced, judging ahead of time. God shows no partiality. His judgment is true and right altogether. Here, Paul, in verses 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16, is going to expand upon this line that he's dropped in verse 11. For God shows no partiality. The theme of this these five verses is the impartial judgment of God. So Paul's subject, Paul, what in the world are you talking about? Is the judgment of God. And in particular, how the judgment of God is impartial. We can trust a God, a judge like that. Now, the second thought is the Apostle Paul the apostle is writing about judgment, that's his theme, not about salvation. Thorny issues surface if you don't read this passage carefully. Some read this passage and say, huh, I see, 
by the way, remember what Peter says? Uh, the ignorant and unstable twist it to their own destruction. They say, oh, I see what you do is uh, you do good and then God judges you as good and you are well. And it goes well in eternity. I see. So I need to be gooder. And if I get good enough, God will accept me. Where would you ever get that idea? Well, isn't that what he says here? Uh, the doers of the law will be justified, declared right, if we do the right thing. By the way, uh, uh, Kevin read that passage well, uh, talking about hearing and doing. James has talked about these concepts. What James says is, when we believe God and receive his gift of salvation, it shows up in our lives. We are changed. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the old things are passing away, and behold, new things have come. When we believe the gospel, it's not a get-out-of-hell-free card that we put in the back of our pocket. It's embracing a way of life, God's way of living, and it shows up. Our belief shows up in our behavior. But this passage is not describing a way to be saved, a way to be delivered from the consequences of our sin. When the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. What's he talking about? He is saying that we live in a world that God created, that's Romans chapter 1, that bears the distinguishing marks of a creator. His eternal power and nature are clearly seen, he says. So every image bearer of God has the law of God written on his heart. Isn't that what he says in Romans 2.15? We have a sense of knowing what is right and knowing that God exists. And we are, as he says in chapter 2, verse 1, you have no excuse. As he says in 1.20, they are without excuse because God has clearly revealed himself and what is seen in his created world. Because God has written his law on our heart, all of us stand before a righteous and holy judge without excuse. Here, he is talking about the judgment of God, not the way of salvation. How will God judge the Gentiles who didn't have the law, they, they weren't in that preferred position as God's priestly nation as Israel. To whom much is given, much will be required. He will judge on the basis of the measure of what is given. And every non-Jewish person says, oh, pff, boy, yeah, that's good. Because, boy, he laid the law on the Jews. So they're really responsible for a lot. I'm not responsible for anything. No, 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 wait. He created the world in which he is clearly seen. He wrote his law on your heart. And you may have a judgment that is not as culpable because you didn't have the law, but you will have a judgment in which you are without excuse. So we're all in the same boat together. Indulgent, Romans chapter 1 kind of a person, the boat's going down. Self-righteous, Romans chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. I'm better than that. Those old people, they're terrible. Look how they're behaving. I'm, I'm better than average. I'm in good shape before God. Our boat's going down too. 
Jewish people, you who say, oh, we have Abraham's blood and God gave us the law and we're good. I don't care what you have. You don't have the kind of righteousness that God accepts until you receive the Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the argument of the early chapters of the book of Romans. That's what's going on here. Look at chapter 4 and verse 5, just across the page. For anyone who's saying, I must be good, and then God will accept me. i got to do some good stuff. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. We don't get to heaven because of merit. You know, we, we start like a Jesus sash on. It starts out tenderfoot. And we finally, if we keep working at it, we'll get the Eagle Scout. And voila, all the Eagle Scouts are allowed to be in heaven. It doesn't work like that. It's not like the Boy Scouts. It's not based on merit. The only thing on our sash is the loud declaration, I deserve hell because of my sin. But we have come to Jesus who notwithstanding our sin, gives us the free gift of righteousness and gives us a future and a hope and forgiveness in life. Verse 5 of chapter 4, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So the apostle is writing about judgment, not telling us how to be saved, He's unpacking the nature of his judgment. To those who've been given the law, the judgment will be more comprehensive because of stewarding the law. But to those who didn't have the law, we don't escape either because the law of God's been written on our hearts. We're made in the image of God and we live in God's created incredible world in which he is revealed Though, what do we do? What's our response? We suppress the self-evident things about God And so God just gives us over to what we want that we think is right that's apart from him. And how's that working for us in Western culture? Not very well. Now the third thought to approach this passage is men are not saved by the light that they have. They are judged by the light that they have. Now we've already established this passage is not about how to be saved. This is the way. He's talking about how we are judged. We are judged by the light that we have. Now, if you think about it, this is another footnote on the impartiality of God. How could God hold culpable the Gentile world to which he did not give his law? He doesn't. That doesn't mean they escape his judgment because they live in a God-created world. They live made in his image where the law of God is written on their hearts. Uh, But for the Jewish nation more culpable because they are stewards of the law. So what he's talking about here is that men are not saved by the light that they have. They are judged by the light that they have. To whom much is given, much is required. The Gentile community could not argue that they are not culpable. Remember, they're without excuse too. But look at verse 15. It's amazing. The law of God constitutionally embedded within our humanity made in the image of God. You ever buy a computer, a piece of hardware? You brought it home. You turned it on. Boom. You discovered that already there is pre-built into the system the software that runs it, the operating system, and the software programs. It's already in there. Of course, you got to call Microsoft and give me your credit card number, you know, but it's already in there. 
Don't ruin the illustration thinking that thought. We are born, made in the image of God, with the law of God written on our hearts. And we're conflicted, are we not? He talks about that conflict. Did you hear it in verse 15? They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, according to my gospel, when God judges the secrets of men's hearts in Christ Jesus Here we are created in the image of God with the law of God written on our hearts, our conscience knowing that and bearing witness of that. We have a sense of what is right and what is wrong informed by the law written on our hearts. By the way, in this cultural moment, we are trying to rewire that sense. That's not working for us either. But our thoughts vacillate between accusing us of violating the law and then affirming that, oh, no, we're, we're, we're okay. And you have this thought skirmish going on back and forth. But please notice the basis of judgment before this impartial judge is the law of God, either revealed in the law of God in the Old Testament or revealed in having that law written on our hearts. Now, how should we then live? we gotta, we got to live. All right, those are three thoughts that, that might help us a little bit approach this passage. My encouragement is that you open your Bible, read through these five verses this week, close your Bible and say, God, what did you have for my heart in working through these verses this morning? All Scripture is given, inspired by God, and has purpose to correct and instruct and train us. So about, what about four application cues for living? This tough passage matters. Let me explain why in four different ways. Number one, we live relishing our deliverance from wrath and not merely our deliverance from unhappiness or fear. It's interesting to listen to how the good news about Jesus, the gospel, Romans chapter 1, verse 1, God's gospel is announced in the day in which we live. The gospel is sold today as a way to the good life. You want a good life? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. By the way, we are very much advocates of coming to Jesus. We want you to come to Jesus. We want you to be forgiven. We want you to know freedom from guilt. We want you to know resolution from a past. And beginning with me, all of our pasts are imperfect. But in Jesus, we have found resolution in forgiveness and hope and life and vitality. Come to Jesus. Be reconciled to God. Indeed. But this idea, get happy, come to Jesus. You come to Jesus You will have challenges you did not know of before you came to Jesus. And they're some of the most glorious challenges that we could ever experience in life. This whole idea of the gospel of your best life now. Oh, the gospel is more than the good life to be experienced. It's not any less than I have come that you might have life, that you might have, you might really live. It's not any less than that, but it's so much more than offload your guilt, get rid of your fear, have peace. It's about a living relationship with a living God revealed in Jesus Christ and a deliverance from just wrath that was due me. 
because of Jesus. Notice how fundamental deliverance from judgment, excuse me, deliverance from judgment is to the gospel. Paul in verse 17 or verse 16 calls it my gospel. What's he doing? What he's saying is Romans chapter 1 verse 1, God's gospel is what he's passing out. He's saying, my message is God's gospel. But please notice that God's gospel and his message at its heart is about judgment. You say, Eric, what in the world are you doing? Why are you harping on judgment? I ask you, is it at the center of Paul's good news message? In fact, you don't understand the good news until you understand what happened in the resolution of our judgment in Jesus Christ our Lord, which makes the cross so glorious and wonderful. Notice the terms in this passage. Verse 12, perish. Verse 13, judged. You talk about having the book thrown at us. The book is thrown at us in these verses 11 times. The law, (laughs) the law, the law, the law, the law, the law, the law, the law. Eleven times the law is alluded to. God judges humanity. What if God's gospel involved quite a bit more than our best lives now? What if the gospel is God's grace manifest in the satisfaction he took in Christ's death in order that we might be saved should we believe in Jesus Christ and hold on to the benefits of the cross? What if that's the gospel? The gospel is not only what we are saved unto, hope, forgiveness, and peace. We're for all of those things, and we relish all of those, but it's for more than that. It's not only what we are saved unto, it's what we are saved from. That's the wrath of God. Justly do us because of our sin. And unless and until we appreciate that, we sort of, as Tozer called it, yawn at the cross and minimize the glory of amazing grace. We we don't sing amazing grace with much gusto because grace is just not that amazing. But when we realize who we really are and what we really were delivered from, I'll tell you what, there's more strength in the diaphragm when you sing amazing grace (laughs) because it really is incredible what God has done for us in Christ. I confess to you this morning, what I believe more than I believe my name is Eric Mounts is I deserve hell because of my sin. But I have another confession to make. I have laid hold of Jesus Christ and that has been resolved in him. And I am free, not because of me, I'm free in spite of me. Free to have peace with God and peace with my past and peace with my today and peace with my tomorrow because I have a great Savior in Jesus Christ. And with such a Savior, we can savor that together. And that's what it means to be a part of God's family. If you're here this morning and you don't have that peace, God is inviting you to that peace. God is inviting you to be forgiven. You just must accept what is true about yourself. That is, you are a sinner separated from God. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, trust not yourself, but in him. Rely upon what he has done. Come to have life this morning. You say, Eric, I don't know how to start. Here's a place to start. There's a very short prayer in the Gospel of Luke, in a story Jesus told. It goes something like this. God be merciful to me, a sinner. 
the end. That's it. It's recognizing who God is. It's recognizing where the fountain of mercy comes from. Remember mercy? Mercy keeps us from what we do deserve. I deserve hell. The bad news of the gospel is, so do you. But the judgment fell on Jesus. That's why we get happy when we come to this table of remembrance that of all things remembers a death. Because in that death, we are made free. Our sin is resolved. John Stott said, we cheapen the gospel if we represent it as deliverance only from unhappiness, fear, guilt, and other felt needs instead of a rescue from coming wrath. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We're all guilty. And God sent Jesus. To make us all free. And you can be free this morning. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Secondly, we live in the comfort of knowing that our judge will be none other than our Savior. This is God's gospel. Think of Hebrews 9, 27. It's appointed in a man once to die, and after that, the judgment. But when we go before the judge, of all things... We go before our brother, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who loved us and gave himself for us. We go before our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's our judge. Aaron Burr was a rascal in colonial America. His rascalness is legendary. The stuff he was found guilty for in his 70s would make you blush. He got ready to die and started worrying about the judgment that he was going to face in eternity. So he devised a plan. By the way, Proverbs 14, 12 is still true this morning. It was true in Aaron Burr's day, but there's a way which seems right to man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. He decided that if he would just get buried next to his venerable grandfather preacher, Jonathan Edwards, a colonial preacher, if I just get buried next to grandpa, I'll be okay. In fact, today, if you go to Princeton, New Jersey, and you go out in the President Cemetery section of Princeton University, the cemetery there in Princeton, you will find a beautiful table stone of Jonathan Edwards, which describes his ministry, and a glorious thing written about Sarah, his wife. And then there's a headstone at the end of the table stone there. <laughs> it's Aaron Burr. Because Aaron Burr reasoned, I'll tell you what, if I just get close to Grandpa on the day of resurrection, I think it will be better for me. So park my mortal remains there. Fascinating idea, horrible plan for facing an impartial judge. Because what you don't want to do is go before the judge undone, not ready to see the judge. And there's only one way to go into the judge. It's with the advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who then holds up his precious blood and says, No, Father, he's one of ours. My blood atoned for his sin. And I am free. In the federal court system, there's a very important court in Cincinnati. It's the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. If you lose in the lower round in the lower courts in Ohio, Michigan, Kentucky, and Tennessee, you can appeal your case before the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. If you don't like it there, you can appeal to the Supreme Court. But they hear a lot of cases. There's a number of judges there who through the years have been appointed 
Bill Clinton was president for eight years, so there he appointed. President Barack Obama was there for eight years, and there, the number of judges were appointed. Well, they, if your case goes before the Sixth Circuit, they have a lottery, and they determine a three-judge panel that will hear your case. In an appellate law, there's no jury. Three judges sit there, and your lawyer argues. The other lawyer argues it's over, and they make a decision. They render a decision. Well, you never know what it's going to be like. And all the advocates wait to see, you know, who's going to be on the three-judge panel. Who will it be? There's different temperaments, different ways of looking at the law. So you're always trying to, man, I hope we, get a good, I hope we draw a good panel. You know, because what you are afraid of is that the judge will not be impartial. The judge will be biased against your case or have a record of cases related to yours that are all, that person was hammered, that person was hammered, that person was hammered. So as you're waiting on the lottery to come out, you're thinking, man, I sure hope that judge doesn't get on my case because hammer, 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 I know what's going to happen. It's going to be another hammer. Nobody has those thoughts before the living God. Verse 11, what's he like? God shows no impartiality. By the way, he's no respecter of persons. He, don't, he doesn't care who you know or who you think's going to get a word in for you. It's all about you naked before him, the one who knows every secret of our life. Now the secrets come out. Look at verse 16. If we know Jesus Christ the Savior, though, we are going before our friend and our brother and our advocate. Be encouraged. It's going to turn out well because our judicial sentence was rendered on Good Friday. And now, what did he say? It is finished. The debt has been paid. Wow, what freedom. Thirdly, we live encouraged in knowing that God is way out in front of us as we reach for others. He's way out in front of us as we reach for others. The law of God written on their hearts. In our conscience, the law of God lives. Now that's true. Now we can sear our conscience. That's a word from the New Testament, 1 Timothy 2.14. And it's a word that means brand, like on the back hide of a cow, a ranch, big cattle ranch will brand the cow. It'll actually burn the nerve endings of the skin so that that cow kind of doesn't have any feeling around there. I mean, you can punch around on that. It's kind of burned out. It doesn't feel it anymore. And it is possible, and it is more than tragic to sear your conscience, such as that intuitive sense embedded in us from creation of knowing good and evil. We throw that aside and dismiss that altogether. That's tragic to sear your conscience. But that, that lives, and we need to be encouraged by that. As John Stott said, in all evangelism, I find it a constant encouragement to say to myself, the other person's conscience is on my side. So as we're talking to them, we are talking to an image bearer of God who has not yet come to follow Jesus. As we're talking to them, we're talking to an image bearer of God who lives in God's created world in which it is self-evident and clearly seen his invisible attributes and his eternal power. We are talking to a person that has the law of God written on their hearts. And so somebody has gone out in front of us that helps us and we need to leverage that as we seek to reach for others. Men, I hope you bring your friends on September the 10th. That evening is going to be worth it. And in a very winsome and attractive way, we'll present Jesus 
and the prospect of living for him to others. You say, well, you know, I'll tell you what, you know, I just, I, I, I don't know, you know, I, every time I talk, the words seem to go down. No, no, no. We need to remember that the law of God's written on their hearts, that they're living in God's created word. Are we driven by what is revealed about God in his word? Or do we cower in fear because of the temperament of our culture in this moment? I had a friend coming to a real bougie golf course on uh, Kiwa Island in South Carolina where only rich people play golf. And uh, I was worthy enough to go into the clubhouse and buy, you know, a a coin, a medallion of the golf course. That's about as far as I got. But I I was told he was coming the next week. So when I got there, I said, hey, can you check your tee times? Is this guy going to be here next week on this day? They said, yeah, he's going off at, you know, so-and-so time. I said, oh, good. Here's what I want to do. I want to buy him a medallion from the course that has the iconic tree and all the colors, and he can mark his ball that day as he plays. So I want to pay for it, and I want you to stow it away. And then when he gets here, I want you to pull it out and give it to him. So so the plan worked. The plan worked. So the next week, uh, Bougie Man and his buddies, you know, got there, and they they stopped him. And they said, hey, uh, we have something for you. And they gave him the coin. And, And now I don't do everything right. It's not about that, but it's about something prepositioned that was there that he was totally unaware of, and then he became aware of it, and it made the experience more delightful. I want you to know that God has prepositioned us made in the image of God, having the law of God written in our hearts, living in this God-saturated world that is self-evident with evidence of him. That's the world in which we reach for others. And then we reach with the power of the gospel able to change us and bring men and women and boys and girls to a personal relatedness to Jesus Christ. All that'll work. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. We have three forces working for us. The power of the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The power of the spirit of God who wields the sword of the spirit. And we have the law of God written on our hearts. There is a natural law. Now Thomas Aquinas wrote about that in the 12th century and, um, uh, you know, Protestants have run away from Catholic discussions about natural law, but there's something to the law of God written on our hearts. Maybe we've run too far away from these notions of natural law. And we need to leverage it in a moment where everything has gone crazy and nobody is following any dictates of any natural law and we're facing disease and carnage and wrecks of our lives because... We're not listening to the law of God written on our hearts that brings us inexorably to the person of Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. Let's be encouraged as we reach for others. By the way, wouldn't it be cool to have 100 guys here with a guy meal eating that meat and walking through the uh, glory of our new student activity center and listening to a fascinating interview and then hearing about Jesus before we leave, wouldn't that be great to anticipate together? We can do it. Let's do it. Let's reach for it. Finally, we live free knowing that in Christ, God has resolved all of our dark secrets at the cross of Jesus Christ. Did you notice verse 16? On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. See, Eric, I'd love to hear Paul share the gospel. Well, you're hearing it. And when he shared it, he talked about God's judgment. But the reason he talked about it is because of how it's resolved in Christ. Fascinating description of the scrutinizing power of the word of God, able to judge the thoughts and intents of our heart. 
declaring the secret things. Active, sharp, piercing division, soul and spirit, discerning the thoughts and intents of the hearts. There's a cave in Logan, West Virginia, where Anderson Hatfield and his boys hung out for years after they killed the three McCoy boys who stabbed Ellison Hatfield on the election day in 1887. They were fugitives away from the law. Nobody knew where the cave was, but they were free, or were they free? They could only live in that cave and come out every once in a while under cover of darkness. And they kind of lived in the bondage of that secret. Do you know how many people live in the bondage of secrets? Live under the tyranny of guilt, the painful memory of where they've been. Hey, beginning with me, all of our pasts are imperfect. And God knows all of our secrets. Dick Lucas, rector of Royal St. George's in London, I went to a preaching seminar that he did, and he started it in a way that was cryptic but unforgettable. He came up to the platform, he just looked over the crowd. And he said, if I knew everything there was to know about you, I wouldn't be here. Then he said, if you knew everything there was to know about me, you wouldn't be here listening. And then he said, isn't the grace of God wonderful? That's how he started. I've never forgotten that. God knows your secrets, and he knows mine. And there's only one place for a secret. It's to bury it under the blood of Jesus Christ, which resolved it forever. Is that where you are? Or has God brought you here this morning to resolve some secrets? To offload some guilt? To celebrate what belongs to us who know Jesus Christ as Savior. Many of us hide from sinful secrets in the darkest part of our lives. We will reckon with Jesus one way or another. As our brother or as our judge. Pat Bradford, our sister, whom we love and is a treasure here. She told the funniest story about her and Charlie Phillips. You know, Charlie just went to heaven a couple weeks ago. And um, she was someplace... And um, she was trying to get in the attic. And it was one of these, like, attic ladders that you pull down and you unfold and you get up in the attic. And, and, she, it, it, and I actually forget what the errand was. And I asked her this morning. She says she's forgotten. But if it's consistent with her character, we know it's a little nefarious and funny. We know it's a little mischievous. But anyway, um, she's trying to get there. And, and she hears uh, Charlie delivered milk for a while. And she hears Charlie deliver milk, and she realizes that Charlie Phillips is out there, her buddy. So she ran down and said, hey, Charlie, I'm trying to get in the attic. Will you help me? And he says, yeah, I'll help you. So, you know, that Charlie gets the ladder down, and he's holding the bottom, and they're working on this project and, you know, getting up in the attic. And in the middle of the errand to get in the attic, the doorbell rings. And Pat looks at Charlie, and Charlie looks at her. And he said, uh-oh, we've been found out. Now, that's funny if you're on a mischievous errand that, that Pat goes on. But what is not funny is to have the doorbell of our life ring in our mortality and stand before the judge of all the earth apart from Jesus. 
But the glory of God's gospels, you don't have to. You can embrace him. There's a phrase in law, settle out of court. It's interesting that what happens is uh, almost nothing goes to court these days. You just Lawyers get rich in gathering facts on either side. And then when they, they'll set a court date and they get up to the date and somehow they, they settle. And even the judge encourages a lot of them to settle this. You know, don't let this go to trial. Once in a while, the passions will be so high, it'll go to trial. And they'll have seat the jury, have the opening statements, and then uh, one side will present a case. And if the first day of presenting the case goes horribly sideways for either side, it's amazing what happens next. Well, they'll go out and, you know, at midpoint day two, and they'll come into the judge and say, Judge, uh, we, we have a motion to dismiss the case. What in the world? What are you doing? Well, we you got out in the hallway and decided we would settle out of court because it was going gloriously bad for one side who says we better run for the hills now while we have a chance before the jury sends us to the dungeon. I'll tell you what, the most glorious settling out of court that ever came place is, came to be is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why meet him at a judge? We embrace him as our Savior. The gospel God's gospel is the grace of God and the gospel gives us the opportunity to settle out of court. I was coming in this morning reviewing my notes and thinking about the message and just anxious to get here. And of all things, I thought of an old song we used to sing at my old country church. I should have copied the words, sung a line up for you. It's refrain line that kept off being repeated was the old account was settled long ago. Long ago, down on my knees. Long ago, I settled it all. Yes, the old account was settled long ago. Yes, my record's clear today. For he washed my sins away. And the old account was settled long ago. Is he an impartial, exacting, holy judge? Absolutely. Is he a glorious Savior? Absolutely and hallelujah he is. Let's pray as we come to the table this morning. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. We would have no hope of being forgiven. We would have no life free from guilt and our pasts which are imperfect. We would have no hope for a better future were it not for Jesus, who promises, whosoever will believe in me has eternal life. Being justified by simply believing, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So our pasts, ugly as they are, are resolved in the glory of a great Savior. Wow. Thank you for such love. Greater love has no one than this than a man laid down his life for his friends. He loved us. He gave himself for us. Praise be to God for such a great Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.